Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with a promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now. Welcome to the Inside Carolina podcast. John Siegley here with Taylor Vipolis and EJ Wilson for our weekly Ask Taylor and EJ show. Guys, the game against Pittsburgh is finally almost here. Heels have had a lot of time to prepare for this one, so I'm sure we'll get into those a little bit more as the podcast goes on. But uh, just as a quick catch up, you know, how you guys doing? Did you have any family or friends that were impacted by the hurricane that came through last week? I don't think I had anybody impacted by the hurricane, um, but just thinking of all the Taro fans that do know people or they were personally affected, um, luckily for me, None of my family was in North Carolina. So, um, yeah, just thinking of everybody. Yeah, for me, same thing. I had a lot of people um, that lived there, but luckily they were uh, able to get out of the way of the storm. But uh, my hearts and prayers do go out to the people who were affected by it. Absolutely. And I think the Heels are planning uh, some sort of drive uh, at the game on Saturday. I know that the players donated their weekly stipends to uh, the fund. Or, or I'm not sure exactly what the title is, but Kevin Reddick, the former linebacker, has a relief uh, group going. So that was really good to see. And I, you know, I'm sure that they'll make some message in Kenya Save on Saturday. But turning to that, that game itself, guys, let's go ahead and get into these questions. And the first one was one that you guys answered last week, but let's just see how y'all feel about it today. And it comes down to the quarterbacks. And it was asked by two different people, but who would you go with the start against Pitt? Elliot or Fortin? Taylor, start with you, man. I'd go with Fortin. I think so far through two weeks, Nathan Elliott has kind of showed you the quarterback that he is. Um, he's somebody who needs a lot of help from the outside receivers. Um, he needs people to create separation. He can't really squeeze the ball into these tight windows. Um, and then he he really has been reluctant to run the ball. Now, whether that's on the coaching staff or him, um, it's just something that you really haven't seen from him yet. So I think you know what you're getting with him, and I think the ceiling for your team would be higher with Cade Fortin. And, you know, Cade Fortin's going to struggle as a freshman quarterback, but this is an offense that really needs a spark right now, and I think that could come in the form of, you know, switching up the quarterback. EJ, what about you, man? Have, have your thoughts changed since last week? Uh, yeah, a, a little bit. I think um, I think Taylor's right. I think it's time that we, we really see what the freshman can do. Uh, Nathan Elliott has had a chance. He's had two games to really show us uh, if he was going to turn things around, if he was going to provide a spark for this offense, if, if he was going to just move the ball like uh, he showed the ability to do last year. And we're just not seeing that from him. So I think it's time that we kind of give the, the freshman quarterback some live action just to get him some experience and really see uh, 
so the coaching staff can really evaluate him uh, fairly. I know it's going to be rough first start. The, I don't think the expectations should really be high. But like Taylor said, the the ceiling and the potential for what he could do is so high. I think you give him a shot uh, before Chaz comes back. And actually, that leads us into the next question here, where you mentioned DJ that Nathan Elliott, you know, last season he came in towards the end of the towards the latter part of the year. He had some good showings. He led the heels to a victory over Pitt and was steady and actually held fourth quarter leads in I think maybe two or three out of the last four games there. But this season, you know, it's just the results have not been the same on the field. What do you think has led to that? EJ, go ahead and give us your thoughts. I really can't explain it. I've never really seen a player uh, regress. Maybe it's the, the supporting cast. Uh, maybe it's just the confidence level. I don't know. Maybe it's really just starting to look like he can't handle the pressure of really being the guy. I mean, he was kind of coming in uh, battling last year. Uh, him and Chaz were kind of exchanging a little bit before he really took over. And I think maybe maybe it's the pressure. I don't know. But it's just kind of disheartening to see him uh, regress like this because I really was excited. I didn't think that with Chaz being out, we would have an issue with quarterback on offense. But uh, he's not seeming – he doesn't look like the same player that he did last year. So, Taylor, you've got the, the offensive experience there. And you did work a little bit with Nathan, I think, you know, when he was on the scout team. So you know, what, what can you tell us about that? Like, have you observed anything different from him in terms of like the way he throws the ball or what do you think is behind his struggles? Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think his skills have necessarily regressed. You know, he's never had the biggest arm. Um, he's always been somebody who's had to kind of like outthink you on the field and uh, just be like 10 steps ahead of you. Um, so I think it comes down to basically three things teams are having more game film of him to prepare so you know teams are putting more people in the box and trying to force him to beat you over the top um I think his confidence was really um took a big hit that first game when other guys weren't making plays and I think he put it on himself to try to put this like superhuman performance to kind of compensate for the rest of the team not doing well and then that just led to a lot of interceptions a lot of talk of maybe he he couldn't be the guy at North Carolina because he's been somebody who's heard for, you know, his whole life. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't be a D one quarterback. And I think that probably got into his head going into the ECU game. And I think it's something that he's still fighting. And then I don't think his receivers are winning as many 50, 50 balls as they did last year. Um, that one crazy catch that Anthony Ratliff had in the pit game is one of the ones that kind of comes to mind where he was kind of juggling it around. And then in the Miami game, when he was just uh, tossing the ball up to Bo Corrales and having the confidence in Bo Corrales to go up and get the plates, I mean, go up and get those catches. So I think it's a combination of uh, a couple things, but yeah, it's not, it's not looking too good for him right now. So you mentioned confidence there, EJ, when you were on the defensive line and you guys were kind of doing your pregame preparations against certain teams and even having that film because I think that's a, another good point, Taylor, that teams kind of know what Nathan can do at this point. They have a lot more to go off of. So, EJ, if you're sitting there in that defensive room, talking with the coordinator, talking with your position coach, is that something that does get brought up and, and they really tell you guys, look, this guy can do X, Y, and Z. He can't do A, B, and C. So this is what we're going to game plan against him. 
I think more so for our strategy, it was more so what's the what's the quarterback's toughness level? If you hit him a couple times, is he going to get rattled? Uh, where does he like to escape to? Uh, what is his tendencies as far as just taking off the run? So we didn't really focus on what someone could do and what they couldn't do. Not not from a defensive line aspect. We were just more so uh, uh, more so conscious of his habits, his cadence habits, uh, his drop back, uh, and more so, uh, is, is he going? Is this a guy that's going to run the ball, or is he going to stay back there in the pocket? If we get to him a couple times early, is that going to rattle him and throw off his self-confidence for the rest of the game? So those are really some of the, the things that we focused on. But with if we're going into a game knowing a guy has kind of struggled, uh, we're definitely going to try to put some heat on him, and we're going to be – Gonna gonna definitely know that if as a defensive line we can directly affect the game because if you start hitting the quarterback and he starts to lose his confidence, I mean that's not only gonna affect the passing game. I mean he could start to get shaky hands when handing the ball off to the running back. So um, we really didn't talk about what he could and could not do, but I do think that a quarterback self confidence is something that we really do monitor. Well, and this wasn't a question that we got, but it's just something that I wanted to kind of throw out there to you guys with in regards to the offensive line. To me, they've done an okay job of giving Nathan Elliott a pocket to, to throw from. He's faced you know, some pressure, but I don't think they've given up a sack on the season so far. So do you think that if the O-line is able to continue that, would that also potentially help out a freshman in Cade Fortin if he does get the nod against Pittsburgh, You know, having an O-line that he can actually trust? How big of a deal is that? Taylor, let's start with you for that. Yeah, I think that would be a huge added bonus for, you know, whoever's the quarterback back there, especially if it's Chasserat, because Chasserat looked the part last year early on in the season until, you know, he lost some of the guys on the offensive line and he was running for his life and against Virginia Tech. So I think uh, the increased play of the offensive line, you look at a guy like Jonathan Troll, who's a walk-on, started his first game at center, and he did a good job outside of the snaps, but he did a good job blocking. He did a good job getting to the second level. So the offensive line, they've done their part. They've created lanes for the running backs. They did a good job um, kind of establishing the run game early on against ECU. And then once they got too far behind, you have to throw the ball and, you know, you're dropping back. And that's when the quarterbacks and the receivers kind of have to step up. And that just never happened. And then, EJ, what have you observed so far about the offensive line's ability to block opposing D-lines? I think that uh, I think they've done a really good job this year. I mean, the test will really be when we get into ACC play and when we're really against some high-caliber and, and very talented defensive lines that we will face. But as far as uh, with the freshman quarterback coming in, I think that having an offensive line that he can trust is – is is very paramount into how he plays and how he develops if he were to come into the game and start on Saturday. I think that I would I honestly think that I would have more confidence in starting uh him knowing that an offensive line can protect him. Um the offensive line is is, is really done a good job. We had some new guys step in, but I, I honestly think that it's been solid for them so far. And if they can just approve and fine tune some things, then I think that they can just continue the success that they've been having uh throughout the end of the season. Let's take a quick break to talk about Jerry's Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Do you need a quick and easy lunch or tailgate option for the football season? Well, Jersey Mike Subs is your place to go for the tasty and efficient dining solution. Our guys at Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill have partnered with the Inside Carolina podcast to offer a great deal for our listeners. Right now, you can use the code HEELS15 to get 15% off of your order. This is an online promotion only, so you go to jerseymikes.com backslash order, click the location nearest to you, choose your sub, and then enter HEELS15 at checkout, and you'll get that 15% off your whole order. 
You can use it for lunch, for a small group, or for a big tailgate. You can skip the line, head straight to the register, grab your food, and you're on your way. Do it today. Place an online order at one of the four Chapel Hill and Hillsboro locations. It's super easy process. Just remember, Heels 15. There are three locations in Chapel Hill, and then the one in Hillsboro is off of exit 261. And look for Jersey Mike's inside of Keene Stadium and with the tailgate guys this fall. Also coming soon, two new locations opening near Briar Chapel in Chatham County and off of 15501 on the way to Durham. There's no denying that Jersey Mike subs are delicious, so take advantage of this deal and support the IC podcast. All right, guys, let's get back to the questions here. So the next one was about Antonio Williams. And the question was, has Antonio Williams impressed enough to get more snaps over Brown and or Carter? Now, to me, I think, especially in that ECU game, it looked like Antonio Williams kind of did take over that starting running back role. But what are your guys' thoughts on that? Do you think that he's shown enough so far this season to you know go ahead and lock that down? Taylor, let's hear from you first, man. In my opinion, he hasn't. Uh, the biggest thing that I'm kind of still waiting to see for Antonio Williams is can he make that first guy miss? If you know you watch, uh, I was watching the Sunday night football game and it was Giants Cowboys. And one of the things that Saquon Barkley does so well is make that first guy miss. And I know he's a top ten pick, but I think out of like his eleven rushes, like the first guy missed at least ninety percent of those rushes. And that's something that I don't think we've really seen with Antonio Williams. And it's one of the reasons why I kind of prefer Jordan Brown right now to be the feature back. Jordan Brown is a little more shiftier. He has a little more make make you miss ability. Um, some of the rushes for Antonio Williams, he did a good job hitting a hole and, you know, especially that one long rush, but that was mostly the offensive line just creating a huge hole. And then he eventually got caught from behind. And I think Jordan Brown has more of that make you miss ability. And I think Jordan Brown's top end speed is a little uh, faster and then I think Michael Carter is somebody who's going to take a big step from his freshman to sophomore year and somebody that could kind of be this spark in the offense. So I wouldn't say Antonio Williams has done anything to kind of separate himself to be the guy to take a bulk of the carries. Um, but I also wouldn't say he's he's done like a poor job or I would say he's done a pretty average job in what I thought he could do. But I'm still looking for more of that like big playability where he's the one creating the big play. All right, EJ, what about you? Would you keep it running back by committee? Or do you think it's time to pick a guy and ha- kind of elect him as as the workhorse? Well, it kind of seems like Williams has been the workhorse, but I think right now that running back by committee is is the best option because like you say, some of those other backs do have more big playability, but Williams has been very consistent. I mean, we just watched in the first half of the ECU game, uh, he ran for 96 yards on six carries. And I know some of that was, was from a big, a uh, big rush, but he also led, uh, well, other than Nathan Elliott, he also led the team in rushing, uh, in the cow game. So I think that right now, uh, he's probably the one that they have the most confidence in, but I think by the end of the year, I think you'll see some of those other backs are passing him and uh, the amount of carries that they get. All right. So the next question we had guys deals with the position coaches and this asked how important is a position coach versus the head coach? EJ, this one was directed at you, but I'm going to bring Taylor in on this one too, where the person made the observation that the defensive lines you played on always seemed well coached. Was that a product of Coach Blake or a combination of Coach Blake and Coach Davis? So we're going to flip that over to Taylor as well, because Taylor, you were there with Coach Gunter Brewer, and we'll get your thoughts on you know, how the wide receiver group worked and if that was a reflection of the position coach or head coach. But EJ, what was your kind of thoughts in in response to that? 
I think the position coach is, is definitely more instrumental in the development of, of players on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the head coach, his job is really just to oversee the program and make sure that his message is getting passed along amongst his uh, amongst his staff and the position coaches. Uh, and we were a very well-coached group. I mean, everything that Coach Blake said was just a reflection of the principles that uh, – that coach Davis had, but coach Blake was there with, uh, with us on a day-to-day basis. We formed a personal relationship with him. He became sort of a father figure for us. And honestly, without coach Blake, I never would have been in the position to even been thought about for the NFL just because we bought into his system. And he showed, he, he had a track record to prove that if you buy into what he's saying and what he's teaching you and, and his methodologies, that you'll be successful. So I think uh, by far the position coaches has a, has a, a greater impact on a player than the head coach does. Yeah, I would echo that statement. You know, 90, I would say like 97% of the time we spent with Coach Brewer and Coach Brewer is the one coaching us up. And where we come from, I guess a different position is Coach Fedora played wide receiver in college. So, you know, he knows wide receiver a little better than all these other positions. But, you know, some of these coaches know every position. And But um, Coach Fedora would like chime in every once in a while. But for the most part in our development, it was all Coach Brewer. Um, I think coach Brewer did a great job with development for some of our guys. You know, he took, he took positionless guys, kind of like guys like Ryan Switzer who came in as a running back and guys like Mac Collins, who was, you know, bouncing back and forth between offense and defense and turned those guys into players that can play on Sundays. Um, so I would put a lot of it on the position coach and very, very little on the head coach, because like you just said, they're kind of just the general who's, observing everything and making sure everything's in line and the position coaches are the ones that are doing the teaching and making sure you're getting right. All right, EJ, this next question is also for you as a defensive end. How hard was it for you to judge when to hit the quarterback after he released the ball and how hard is it for defensive linemen to pull up and not hit a quarterback? I honestly don't think it's that difficult because I mean, and this kind of goes back to the question we just answered. Uh, it all goes down to the position coach because uh, we always had a timer in our head. We always knew that the quarterback was trying to get the ball out of his hands within three seconds. So we always, when we did pass rushing drills, when we did individual drills, we always worked on that clock. And that was simply because to one, to create a sense of urgency in our rush and two, to have to be conscious of when that quarterback might not have the ball in his hand, because I mean, of course you want to go hard and finish the play. Maybe you kind of throw him off, throw off his normal uh, mechanics, but you also don't want to get that uh, personal foul that uh, late hit on the quarterback. And the rules are a little bit more, uh, not as lax as they were when I was playing. I mean, even though I know it wasn't that long ago, the rules have changed so much between now and then that a lot of the hits that we had on the quarterback probably would be called penalties these days. So I think it's a mix of just having that timing in your head. If, if you worked on that timing, then it's not that hard. But then again, it's hard for me to judge because of the way the rules are today. So actually go into that just a little bit more, EJ, like what kind of drills did you guys do to practice against that? Well, it was, it was all, uh, and when we did one-on-ones, uh, the offensive line coach, as well as the defensive line coaches, they didn't let anything go for more than three seconds. There was no, there was, there, once we got tied up and there was nothing going on, then we always released. But there was always someone back there just acting as the quarterback 
and just doing things like that. And then you also have just when we're running our basic drills and strength and conditioning, we're always trying to get get to a certain point in about three seconds. We had a drill where a person would line up maybe a yard or two yards from us and uh, we snapped the ball and our job was to try to touch that person before they got back to five yards. And that kind of simulated the timing of how long you have to get off the line, defeat the block and get to the quarterback. So I just think that that kind of helped develop a better sense of timing with us. EJ, one of the problems that I see for North Carolina is, you know, late hits on the sideline. Is that something that you see on the defense? Like, can you feel the sideline and when you're coming up on it? Yeah, you can definitely feel it and you're definitely conscious of it. I mean, you know, if you've been running for a certain amount of time, um, but that also goes to to your a player's presence. Do they know where they are, where they know where they're at on the field? Or is that something that is that something that they're able to do? Is that are, are they that level of player? But as for us, like I said, we always had drills to make sure we knew where we were on the sideline because, I mean, then that kind of goes back to always avoiding penalties and, and being disciplined. That's stuff that we work on. And you're going to have those type of plays and hits out of bounds. It's not something that's your, your focal point or something that you've ran through in practice before. Taylor, another question for you actually here is EJ mentioned the rules changes and a big rules change that's happened pretty recently is dealing with wide receivers going over the middle, uh, the targeting calls where defenders now it's heavily, heavily looked at and scrutinized and penalized if a defender drops his head. And there was initially a little bit of pushback because a lot of fans felt that when a wide receiver catches the ball and you're protecting yourself, the head naturally comes down and that could create that helmet on helmet contact. Now, when you guys are going through your drills and kind of working on that, did was that ever brought up where how you guys could either avoid that happening or maybe even in some instances try to draw some penalties? It was never something that we really worked on. Um, whenever you're going across the middle, your your first thoughts are somebody's going to you know ring my bell, but I have to do everything to kind of secure the catch. So the only drills that we did that kind of focus on that are just, you know, these distraction drills and guys coming up and bumping you when you're about to catch the ball because, you know, your catches aren't always going to be these clean uh, windows that you're catching it. So we never did anything like that. The only drills that I could kind of think of, um, we did these um, like submarine catches where we were just focused on catching the ball near the first down marker and then just kind of diving towards the uh, sticks and picking up the first down. Let's take another quick commercial break to talk about a way to go travel. Are you looking for a simple, easy, and better way to travel to UNC football or basketball road games? Well, now is your chance. Heels Travel is partnered with Inside Carolina to provide an easy and simple travel for select UNC away games. Chuck Joyce, the president of A Way to Go Travel, is a Greensboro native and a diehard Carolina fan. He wanted to find a better, easier, and more efficient way to get fans to away games. So right now, Heels Travel is selling packages to get you to the Virginia game in Charlottesville on October 27th. This is a one-day bus trip from Chapel Hill. The leaves should be changing, and it's a great chance to check out a cool town and cheer on the heels. It makes the process easy. You can ride with other diehard UNC fans, and you don't have to worry about parking or having to drive. It's a win-win. Visit HeelsTravel.com now or call 336-855-0060 to book. Also right now, Heels Travel is selling packages for the UNC basketball games in Las Vegas over Thanksgiving weekend. There's no better way to spend the holiday than watching the Heels play two games in the desert and enjoying everything Las Vegas has to offer. 
That package includes round-trip airfare from RDU, round-trip transportation from the airport to the hotel, and a three-night stay at the Aria Resort and Casino. So visit HeelsTravel.com now or call 336-855-0060 to book. All right, moving on to the next question, guys. This person asked about the offensive line and defensive line and how they gel. EJ, again, this one was kind of geared to you where the question itself asked, how big a dynamic is it for the defensive line to play together and learn each other's tendencies? Or is it more of a plug and play mentality where you each have your assignment and it doesn't matter the chemistry between the defensive tackles and the defensive ends? Chemistry is everything on the defensive line. Uh, and and it's, a, it's something that really goes unnoticed. I mean, everybody needs to know each other's past for tendencies because we all have a responsibility. So let's just say if you have uh, a five technique or someone who's lined up over the tackle and he's uh, rushing to the same side that the nose guard is, well, he needs to know his tendencies. Or if he's next to the three technique, he definitely has to know his tendencies because if that three technique takes an inside loop or if he takes an outside loop, the defensive end needs to know that. Also, the defensive tackle needs to know if the uh, if the end is going to make is he coming inside and does he need to wrap around outside for uh, to to make sure he has contained or so that chemistry has to be there. Also, when they run pass rush games, uh, timing has to be there. It has to be something that you you've worked on a long time. I mean, a lot of times you can see the uh, reserves and backups come in, but a lot of times during training camp, the defensive line is all mixed up all together, so everyone can end up playing with each other because an offensive line you don't have a lot of uh, you don't have your standard level of substitutions usually those guys are playing every snap but with the defensive line there it does look like it's plug and play but those guys have gotten reps together in practice they've been in a meeting room together and they've done individuals together so they've had a chance to really get each other's timing but I think it's important for both the offensive and defensive line to have good chemistry and knowledge of uh, what the person beside them is going to do so Taylor what about between uh, wide receivers and quarterbacks is that also something that you can kind of plug and play or is that just something that you have to work and develop at by like EJ was saying, where you just practice over and over and over and over again. And also second part of of that question, is there a difference between catching balls from a right-handed quarterback or a left-handed quarterback? First, I would say it is different, you know, when you're plugging guys in because you don't know, you have to be able to judge as a quarterback is this guy a little faster? Do I need to put a little more air under the ball? But as a general rule, the coaches try to, you know, keep all these balls on the same line and all these balls on the same landmarks. So you're not changing, you know, based on, is this guy a, a burner or is this guy more of a possession guy? All these balls should have the same targets, whether it's, you know, 40 yards downfield on the numbers. Um, and then, you know, some of these routes, as a receiver, you have to know you can't cheat it because the quarterback's depending on you going 15 yards because a lot of the times, you know, you you get jammed or you get this press coverage and in your mind you're just thinking, I got to get out of this route, I got to get out of this route. But if that quarterback's expecting you to go 15 yards, you have to get to that 15 yards or else he's not ready to time it up if you cut it at, say, 10 yards. And then what was the second question? Sorry, Oh, no, it's fine. Second part was, is there a difference between catching a ball thrown by a right-handed quarterback versus a left-handed quarterback? Because you know you, you do see that kind of as a lore. I don't know if it's a message board only thing, but in your experience, you know, is there a little bit of a difference in that in those situations? It looks a little different just from an angle perspective, but it all depends on, you know, what kind of ball the quarterback throws. Um, 
guys like Bryn Renner kind of put more, more, more on the ball and they were coming up on you a lot faster than say somebody like Nathan Elliott, who's, who doesn't have this strong arm. So it kind of depends on the quarterback and their arm strength and how they're throwing the ball. Um, so it's, it's not like if it's a righty or lefty thing, but more so uh, on the individual quarterback himself. All right. Gotcha. I've always just wondered that because, you know, you see some old time football heads will say that maybe the spirals difference and things like that. I, you know, obviously I've never played at any level of football. So <laughs> I haven't <laughs> noticed if, if something's there, I haven't noticed it. Gotcha. Well, you, you have a little bit more gravitas to speak on that than I do, or, you know, probably, 99% of our message board fans. So <laughs> good to have the answer there. All right, guys, let's move on to the next question here. And this asked if the season continues as it has and basically goes off the rails, would you like to see the coaching staff play more freshmen in order to get them game experience or keep their red shirts so they can benefit from strengthening from strength and conditioning? Uh, you know, kind of just which one do you think would be more beneficial there? EJ, let's hear your thoughts on that, man. I think if they get to a point and they know that that they're not going to be there anymore, I think that they should let the kids have their red shirt so they'll have four years under whoever whatever the new regime is. I think that I think that that's that's the gift that he can give them. I mean, if I were a player, that's what I would want to happen. I wouldn't if the coaching staff knew they were going to be there. Uh, there's no point. Their evaluations of me really don't hold any hold any weight with the new coaching staff. So I'll just have to come in and prove myself again. And what if I'm truly not ready? That's just one less year. I have to prove myself to the new coaching staff and earn time on the field. So I don't, I don't really think it would be fair to the players to, for the coaches to burn their red shirts if they know that they're out the door. Now, what about if they can play, you know, the four games, because that rule did change. Would you like to see the, the freshmen you know, if they have the opportunity to play in four games or would you just think it'd be better to just hold them out unless if they're just 110% ready? See, I forgot about that rule. Yeah, if, if it's not going to burn their red shirt, I would definitely say playing. But if it's five games, if, if these coaches get fired, let's say two more games into the season and there are five games left, yeah, don't burn their red shirt. But I understand if they want to get on the field. But yeah, make it, make it so it's within those four games. But uh, I, back to my original point, if it's more than the four games that would burn their red shirt, I don't think it would be fair to the player. All right, Taylor, what about you, man? I would burn the red shirt if that player gives you the best chance to win. You know, I don't really like to think about should we save this guy a year or should we not? Because I think you owe it to everybody on the team, everybody that's out there practicing to kind of give you the best chance to win. And if the best chance to win is, you know, say a guy like Anton Green, then I think you you owe it to the rest of the team to play him because everybody, you know, from Blue Dawn on, has put in the work, put in the time, play the best guys and, you know, worry about their eligibility kind of later. All right. So let's go ahead and wrap up the last question that we got here, guys, where they asked your opinions on having a week off after a bad loss. So back when you guys were playing, was there ever a situation where the team had a really bad kind of demoralizing loss and you had that extra time to think about it? Do you guys think it was better after that loss to get back on the field as soon as possible or to kind of have that extra time off to maybe recharge things and see where you're at. Taylor, what, what do you think about that? Off the top of my mind, I can't remember any, I'm sure there were pretty bad losses in the 2013, 2014 when we had buys. 
I'm trying to think. I think we lost at Virginia Tech, and then we had a bye in 2013. And then that Thursday night game, we kind of had a short week and played Miami. And, you know, losing to Virginia Tech is always tough just because they're one of the teams that were competing the heaviest for recruiting. But I think the the hype surrounding that Thursday night, the blackout game, really yeah. uh, kind of – it was all the motivation, you know, that the team kind of needed in and of itself – but anytime you really have a bad loss, I think the mindset of the team is they want to get back out on the field to kind of get that bad taste out of their mouth. And, you know, they'll, they appreciate the days off and, you know, getting their legs back under them. But it's so early in the season that I don't think fatigue should be a problem at this stage of this, at this stage of the season. So I think these guys are more just chomping at the bit to get back out on the field and kind of showing fans you know who the 2018 can be because so far they haven't put a good display out on the field all right what about you aj do you recall that happening and you know what's your thoughts on having extra time or getting back on the field asap after a bad loss i don't recall a time where that's happened to me uh but uh, i do my, my opinion as far as the situation is that I think the time off, especially for this particular team, is 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 a good thing because they get more time to focus on what happened in the last game that they played. Um, I know that they were in the midst of preparing for UCF, but they also had a time. They, they get more time maybe over the weekend to kind of reflect back, what did I do wrong? What can I do better to improve this week? And they get to, to watch some other football and it kind of takes their mind off of things. So when they come back, they'll be fresh. So I think that uh, in this situation with this particular team, I think that it can be a positive and hopefully it will be. All right. And then there's actually a second kind of second part to that first question here that I almost overlooked in your opinion, do you guys think that the team is going to be feeling any extra pressure to win this game? And do you think that the team is hearing the grumbling about the coaching staff as these losses continue to pile up? EJ, what's your thoughts on that? I think they definitely feel the pressure, and I think they definitely hear the rumblings. Uh, you kind of know when you're when, when things aren't going going good. I mean, it's not that just that they lost the games; it's the way they lost the games, and kind of the display and some of the comments that they were making about they weren't necessarily zoned in or tuned in on the first game, and then to come out against an in-state rival and kind of perform like like they did against ECU. So I think the way that they're playing, they know that hey, we need to get this together because this this season can get out of hand really fast, and I think they know that i mean they're not they're not deaf they're not blind they hear people talking people are asking them questions hey their family's calling them is your coach going to get fired what are you going to do if you guys get a new coach so i think they're kind of feeling the pressure uh and like i said uh last week i think that it's time for somebody to step up and try and, and show and show their respect for their coach and play hard for him because it doesn't seem like that they're at sometimes they don't play very hard for themselves so something else needs to motivate them yeah, if your team's not playing well, you're going to hear about it. Whether, you know, these guys are on social media, they're checking their social media. You know, you can't go to the barbershop without somebody at the barbershop saying that your team isn't doing good. You can't go to Sutton's without eating and somebody telling you your team's not doing good. So these guys are hearing it, you know, 24-7, and they they could see the, the writing on the wall for where their season's heading. But if you're that this 2018 UNC team, you have to go in with the mindset that, your goal is still intact for, you know, winning the Coastal. You haven't played any conference games yet, as bad as you played in those first two games. Um, so one of your goals is still intact. You know, one of this, one of 
this team's other goals was to win the last game of the season, whether, you know, you're hoping that's a bowl game, but if it's not a bowl game, you're hoping to win that last game against NC state. So you still have some goals intact and you just have to focus and kind of tune out the noise. And, but with that being said, tuning out that noise is pretty hard because it's really loud on the outside. All right, guys, let's wrap the podcast up with this. What is your best and worst memory from playing against Pittsburgh? Now, Taylor, I'm hoping that you have more better than the negative because I don't think Carolina lost to Pitt while you were a member of the team. So let's get y'all's thoughts there and we'll go ahead and call this thing a night. Well, for, for me, it was definitely the bowl game my senior year. Uh, Deion Lewis uh, had broken out on a power play on the side, uh, opposite side from me. And I just, it was the last game of my career. I said, I'm just going to try to chase him down, at least get a hit on him. So I just happened to, to ta- start tackling him on the one yard line and he fumbled through the end zone and a touchback. And it was just, that was just one of the, the proudest moments I've had in my career, period. So that's the fondest memory. The the worst memory, of course, is the almost 100 yards Deion Lewis had on us in the first half <laughs> and uh, kind of in losing the last game of my college career. So it was uh, definitely a lot of highs and lows in that game. All right, Taylor, what about you, man? What do you recall about the Pittsburgh Panthers? The high for me would be 2015, that great season that we had. I think we came into Pittsburgh. Um, I think we won six straight. That would be that was our seventh in a row. They were ranked. They were at home. Um, pretty sure it was a Thursday game. And, you know, just going on the road, beating a ranked team, I th- they were – three and oh in conference so or maybe four and oh in conference we gave them their first conference loss uh the play that kind of sticks out to me is when marquise williams got his face mask tugged and he still got off that long pass for a touchdown all the receivers were really clicking well that game i think they scored maybe two three touchdowns on their own and then my worst memory we we never lost at pittsburgh so i don't really have a worse memory on the field i guess if i had to pick something from one of those wins, it would just be seeing like James Conner running for a ton of yards every time. But at the end of the day, we always found a way to win and kind of stop them. And then what about this Saturday? Let's get some actual predictions from you guys. What do you think is going to happen? Will the Heels be able to turn it around? Or is this going to be the one time that Narduzzi gets the best of Coach Fedora? Taylor, let's start with you. Yeah, I said that I thought this would be the year that Pittsburgh came out on top. Uh, preseason and I'm sticking with that prediction Um, I just haven't seen enough to be confident about North Carolina's offense and um, you know this is a really crucial game it starts you off in conference play you have Miami and Virginia Tech and at Syracuse your next three games so you're kind of staring 0-6 into you're staring right into 0-6 um, with your first win potentially coming in really late October. And by that point, the season would be basically out of reach for all your goals. So I think this is a huge game for Carolina. But at the end of the day, I, I just don't think they have the offense to get it done. All right, EJ, close us out, man. I want to say UNC, but I mean, realistically, uh, Pitts is having a much better season right now. They're coming off a win against uh, Georgia Tech, uh, another a conference win. So, um, I just think they'll be chomping at the bits, uh, seeing a, a kind of wounded UNC team that's not playing well right now with a chance to start off their conference play 2-0. I think they'll come out ready to play, and I think that they'll get the best of a Saturday. 
Well, we will see. And like you said, Taylor, I mean, if Carolina does drop this game, they really are looking at 0-6. And, and I mean, at that point John, what's time, your prediction? Uh, I think Carolina is going to pull it out. Just, wow. yeah, I'm going to have a little bit of faith. I actually think that Cade Fortin will get the start, and I think he's going to provide that extra spark. And, you know, maybe I, I have a little bit too much faith, but I really hope that the home crowd shows out. I think you're going to have a lot of Tar Heel fans kind of showing up to see what happens in this conference game. So hopefully the crowd gets behind them and just by hook or by crook, Larry Fedora gets it done. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, guys, let's go ahead, though, and uh, end, end this one. I appreciate both of you guys, and we'll talk again next week. All right, sounds good. Thank you. All right, thank you. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, presented by Jersey Mike Subs of Chapel Hill. Get 15% off your online order with the promo code HEELS15. Go to jerseymikes.com slash order now.